Welcome to the Pruleith Culinary Institute podcast. I'm your host, Adela Stieler von der Westhausen. Join me as we explore the fascinating world of food through interviews with chefs, chefs in training, farmers and producers. We will be talking ingredients, techniques, recipes, history, trends, health, sustainability and even the odd bit of politics. But it will all be about food. Joining me for this episode is our patron and one of the founders of our Culinary Institute, Prue Leith. Ida, you were born in South Africa, left the country as a student to study in France and later settled in the UK where you built an absolutely phenomenal career as a restaurateur, chef, caterer, television presenter, businesswoman, food writer, novelist. The sentence doesn't do it justice. But looking back shortly before your 80th birthday, what has been the greatest highlight? Oh, Lots and lots of things, but I, I think probably when Tiny Barnardson walked into my office in London, he's a hotelier, and he said, can we have a Leith's school in South Africa? And I just thought, well, it's the land of my birth, and it would be so great if I could be involved in the sort of renaissance of food, or not really the renaissance, but the sort of development of food and tourism in South Africa talking about 25 years ago or 20 years ago when honestly food in South Africa for tourists was pretty boring and it just seemed to me at the right time and the right thing to do and so I would say that the Pruleith Culinary Institute is probably my greatest achievement and it wasn't my achievement it was you guys it was the people who came to me and said let's do it. How did you end up in food as a career? Why food? You often use the, the, the words for the love of good food. Well, I've always been greedy, but growing up in South Africa, I mean, I came from a sort of very Johannesburg, northern suburb, middle-class white family, and we had a wonderful Zulu cook called Charlie. Charlie could have taught me to cook, but it never occurred to anybody that I would be a cook, and so I barely went into the kitchen except to nick things, you know. <laughs> and occasionally make jam tarts, and Charlie helped me. So it didn't occur to me to be a cook until I was at university in Paris, and then I suddenly found the whole of... It, all French people were obsessed with food. They'd talk about what they were going to have for lunch, they'd talk about where the food came from, they'd talk about who was the best chef and and who was the best producers, and chefs talked... You know, it didn't matter if you were a metro worker or the captain of industry... You were interested in food, which wasn't so. In my family, nobody talked about food. It was almost as if talking about food was a bit sort of vulgar, like talking about money. You know, it was wonderful. And I just suddenly thought I could be involved in food other than just eating it. And so I started to cook. As founder of two chef training institutions, why would you recommend a career in food today? Well, to be honest, I'd only recommend it if it's somebody who's really interested in the subject. I think if you are fascinated by food and you're interested in the history of it and you want to have the best food, then you will have the mojo to do the job. You know, honestly, a career in food is not an easy one, especially in the restaurant trade. Hours are long, culture's often not right, and you don't get much time off, and you don't get paid very well. So you've got to love it. You've absolutely got to love it. So the first thing is a real, genuine interest in it. 
to be honest, talent doesn't matter that much because anybody can learn to cook well. It's true that the real geniuses are something else. I mean, Gordon Ramsay is an amazing cook. He, people think he's just a fantastic television presenter, but he's not. To watch him cook is just like watching a really fantastic violinist. So if, if you're brilliant at it, then you can get to the very top. But if you are just good at it and you work hard, you will do well. A lot of people leave the profession because it doesn't suit them and hours are too long and so forth. And so you can travel quite quickly up it. But there are more jobs in food than in the restaurant trade. You can be a food photographer, you can be a stylist, you can write about food, you can teach cooking, you can be a baker, you can have a cake shop. There are hundreds and hundreds of things you can do in food which will satisfy that desire to work with good ingredients and give you a nice life. And everybody likes a cook. I I met a boy in London recently. He was on the Bake Off, and he was a 15-year-old kid with an Afro-Caribbean background. Single mum, absolutely destitute, his living on the street, all etc., you know, really, really bad background. He ended up cooking and taking cupcakes to school, and it was a boys' school, and it was the roughest school in Hackney. And I said, how could you, a boy, be cooking cupcakes and taking them? He said, it made me the most popular boy in the playground. (laughs) I mean, honestly, cooking gets you anywhere. That's very true. You mentioned earlier on the culture in kitchens. There's recently been quite a lot of talk about changing kitchen culture, where famous chefs like René Rizzepi and Massimo Bottura advocate for change in order to ensure that restaurants have a workforce in the future. What is your view on the sustainability of the actual chef? Well, you know, they're absolutely right, those two. Certainly in London, the culture in kitchens has changed dramatically. When I first came into the industry, the the sort of norm was a rather sergeant majorish bullying, usually European, French or German chef at the top of the heap, and everybody terrified of him. He would have been a good chef and a good organiser, but he shouted at everybody and, and the cruelty and the, and the initiation ceremonies and all these sort of, you know, like putting young lads into a stockpot and threatening that you were going to turn, you know, a great big stockpot that could take a human being oh. and turning, uh, turning it on, you know, sure. turning the gas on underneath um, and locking them in the freezers. And boys would be sometimes, if they burnt something, the chefs would put a knife over the flame till it's really, really hot and then bang it on their wrists deliberately to teach them not to burn stuff. Well, actually, nobody learns if they're frightened. I think that that culture has just got to change and it's mostly changed because chefs in Europe anyway have begun to realise that people aren't going to stand for it anymore and that if they keep losing young people who do, you know, a year or two and then they drop out. But until... It's really difficult to change it completely because until customers will pay more for the food, restaurateurs are not going to be able to afford two brigades. So you have one brigade doing lunch and another doing supper. So they're going to go on doing split shifts. And split shifts are the death of, I mean, that's what makes most people leave. Because if you think you do five hours in the morning, then you get a couple of hours off. But you're miles away from home. You can't have a rest 
in that two hours. So what do you do? You walk around the streets, you spend your money on, you know, whatever you buy, or buying lunch or something. And then you do another four hours in the evening. You have no life. Mm. So we have to get rid of the split ship system and we have to change the culture to, into something nurturing. And actually, nowadays, the best chefs are really proud of their students. The you know, people like Raymond Blanc, Raymond has, I think it's 27 Michelin star chefs were trained by Raymond or have been through his kitchen. Well, that's a fantastically proud boast. And every one of them is proud of having worked at the Manoir. So these chefs in, in South Africa making a fuss are absolutely right. You have mentioned chefs burning things. What has been your greatest culinary disaster? <laughs> Well, there have been lots. You know, I've lived a very long time, so I've had lots of disasters. <laughs> the most spectacular one. Um, I think probably right at the beginning of my career, when I, I managed to miss the day, the one day at cookery school where we were told how to deal with a live lobster. But somebody rang me up and asked me if I would cook lunch for Princess Margaret. She was going to be the guest of honour at her lunch. And I said, well, what did she want to eat? And they said caviar and lobster. I'd never seen caviar and I'd never seen lobsters. But of course I said yes. The long and the short of it was that they were going to do the shopping. And when I had a read-up how to, how to deal with the lobster, had a little practice on my teddy bear, you know, t- take the knife and put it, <laughs> <laughs> position it where, where the thorax meets the head and, you know, plunge it in and all the rest of it. Anyway, I, I arrived all prepared to myself. I can do this. I'm not squeamish. I'll be able to kill a lobster. Well, I got there and there were these lobsters and they had rubber bands around their claws and I was very relieved to see that because I thought, well, they're not going to grab me. And they seemed quite docile. Anyway, I was busy stabbing them when in walks the butler and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm killing the lobsters. (laughs) And he said, those lobsters are boiled. (laughs) I didn't know that Dead lobsters are red and, and live lobsters are black because I'd never seen it. <laughs> anyway, he became my, we became great friends and he became my head butler. And when I had a company, which eventually that company employed 500 people and he was the head butler for me and he, he went everywhere. But, you know, he never lost an opportunity of telling our clients that story about me not knowing a lobster from dead one from a live one. That must have been a fun one to share for him. (laughs) Talking about skills, what do you think is the most important skill that a young chef should learn? It's it's an attitude, and that is one of willingness and adaptability. Things change in the kitchen all the time. Somebody doesn't turn up, you have to suddenly stand in for somebody else. The customer doesn't like what you've done, have to do it. Just don't let your emotions get in the way. Don't think you've got to argue with a head chef or argue with a customer. Just do it. Do it cheerfully. And that, if you can be cheerful and willing, that's almost the beginning and the end of being a good employee. Attitude will absolutely determine how much you're going to be learning. Attitude is everything. I mean, people who are willing and work hard, they get on just so much faster than even the most talented chef. If he's a bit bolshy and a bit difficult and doesn't turn up on time, nobody wants to employ him. Absolutely. You have been involved in cooking television shows in the UK, well, actually from early in your career, but especially since 2006. Do you think that the industry is accurately portrayed in these shows? 
Well, I suppose it depends on the show. I mean, no, I would say it's it's not really. Most shows either stick to a sort of um, what I call the Gordon Ramsay school of management, you know, when you shout at everybody, which actually Gordon doesn't do in real life. It's just a television invention. He, you know, people like Angela Hartnett would never have worked for 12 years for Gordon Ramsay if he behaved like he does on telly. And in fact, he stopped behaving like that now. He's much calmer. So I wouldn't say many shows are very accurate, but there is something wonderful about the machine of a good kitchen during the service when everybody is actually quite quiet, moving fast. And the one thing you can hear is the head chef calling the orders. And it's it's a wonderful thing to watch. It's almost like a ballet. But you don't get much of that on telly. You just get the sort of all the drama and the... Mostly it just works like a machine, mm. a very good machine. Indeed. It is a beautiful thing to watch. A it is. Busy pass. I know. Team working together. You feel a bit like the conductor in front, making sure everyone's getting everything out on time. No, and, you know, the public never realise what a complicated thing it is. I mean, if you think that you've got a room full of customers, perhaps the average table has six people in it. Six people have ordered six different first courses, six different main courses, and somebody in the kitchen is making sure that everything lands on that those six plates at the same time. And, you know, the vegetables will be coming from one part of the kitchen, the bit of pastry will be from the poached egg from somewhere else, all to make a Florentine egg. And it just happens like magic. And then the customer is in a rage because it takes t- five minutes longer than it should. They ought to just go and look what happens in the kitchen and they'd perhaps understand. However, this is my moment to say, I've just come back from Cape Town. I went to three restaurants, all absolutely wonderful food, just delicious, faultless cooking. It took an hour and a half to get fed. An hour and a half in all three of those restaurants. I mean, that's crazy. So come on, South Africa, jack up your service. We hope that uh, in Gauteng you're going to get a bit better service. We might be a bit more efficient up here. Do you make sure that the students have that urgency that desire to feed the because i think half the time it's because the customers are in cape town anyway are so laid back they did it was me that was complaining and i was the guest <laughs> but everybody else was just quite happy to sit there for an hour and a half certainly in our restaurant that doesn't fly it is an incredibly important part of our training at the academy and i think Also, the reason why we, as part of the initial sort of introduction to the career, talk about teamwork. Um, Because as you've mentioned, you know, that timing is only perfect if a team can really work together like a good orchestra. I know. You only have one person to mess it up and none of those six dishes come out on time. Exactly. Exactly. I think service in South Africa, we've got... We, we're absolutely friendly, but we can certainly work on our service um, <laughs> to get it out faster and a, a bit more professional. As a successful businesswoman, you started actually her first catering business in a small flat. What advice can you give to food entrepreneurs in South Africa? I was a trained cook when I started because I'd, I'd been to the Cordon Bleu and I'd done the course. So I, I sort of felt confident about the cooking. But what I think young people today need is a proper training that includes some business because I blundered away and I was lucky you know I managed to have customers who were helpful and sometimes I didn't have any money to buy the ingredients and they would buy it up front and you know I just sort of at the beginning 
I think what I did have was honesty. So I would tell people, and look, I, I can't afford to stump up the ingredient money, you know, you've got to pay for it. And it was fine. But I think today people expect more efficiency and they, it's very good if, people, if young people can learn something about business and about cash flow and about how to manage um, suppliers and make sure the quality is there. And I mean, I, I just blundered along at the beginning. And to be honest, I wasn't very good. I often didn't do a good job. Your customers were forgiving. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's one of the things that we're really delighted about with our new national qualification, being a bit of a longer qualification, that the way that it's structured um, for us at the uh, Pre-Leith Culinary Institute is that the last semester is focused exactly on that part to say, now you need to learn how to manage the resources, the people, the finances, better management of your commodities, a little bit more of the sustainability. So hopefully that is something that will, uh, you know, will also help our entrepreneurs because that certainly is something that um, this country needs and food is very exciting. And the other thing that young entrepreneurs working by themselves need to do is concentrate on marketing. You know, they have to market themselves. They have to be, so you can be the best cook in the world, but unless you tell the world about it, they won't know. You won't get customers unless you make an effort. And I want to tell you one little story about which really helped me at the beginning of my career. I was cooking for some woman in London, rather grand lady, and I heard from the kitchen, I could hear the customers talking, you know, the, the guests of the dinner party. And one of them said, oh, this is so delicious. You must give me the name of the cook in the kitchen. And she said, oh, no, no, she's just come to do the washing up. She said, I did all the cooking. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I was so indignant. I wanted to you know, push, out, push open the hatch and start shouting. But then I thought, no, that won't get anyone anywhere. And so what I did was I had had little cards printed. So I put a card in the pocket of every one of the guests' coats, which were hanging in the hall. And I wrote on top of each card, your dinner was cooked by. <laughs> really, That's brilliant. And do you know, the next day, um, I had a phone call from the secretary of a chairman of a big publishing company. And she said, my boss wants you to come in and see him because he'd like you to, you to cook for their director's dining room. And so I went in and I got the job. And he said to me, it wasn't only that your food was so good, but I was so impressed with your marketing skills. <laughs> and I think as chefs, quite often we don't have that. We, we sort of hide away. Yeah. And that was such a brilliant way to, just, to get your I mean, name out. Just to have cards. I mean, if you're a little caterer and you're doing a wedding or a party, even if you just have the tags that you get your staff to when they take the coats. Mm. So when they give people a, a ticket for their coats, if that has the caterer's name on it would be helpful. All sorts of things, napkins and everything. I mean, obviously, in, in many places, you're not allowed to put your name around. But if you can, do. Food writing has been a great part of your career. You have written 14 cookbooks. The latest one is The Vegetarian Kitchen. What are the secret ingredients to a very good cookbook? Well, today, a good cookbook has to have pictures in it that make you want to cook the dish. You know, when I first started writing cookbooks, there were no pictures in them. And people seem to have time to read, but they don't now. They just flap through and cook the one that looks good. So good photographer is good. But I think the main thing is to have things that are familiar enough not to be off-putting, not so strange that people won't want to do it. But it must have some little twist that is interesting and new. 
and you think, oh, that's a good idea. So I think it's that. But this book, this the vegetarian kitchen, is is fascinating to me because I wrote it with my vegetarian niece. I love vegetarian food. I've always loved veg, and and but I'm a tremendous carnivore. I'm in a South African. I mean, all South Africans are carnivores. So I love meat, but I also love veg. So I thought it's time. But interestingly, 25 years ago, I wrote a vegetarian cookbook, and I wanted to call it The Vegetarian Kitchen. And the publisher said, if you have the word vegetarian in the title, we will not sell a single copy. Nobody will buy a vegetarian cookbook. And so we called it Contemporary Cooking or something. It didn't sell very well. <laughs> so then I've got another chance now, and this one's called The Vegetarian Kitchen. And I'm sure it will sell well because there's a whole wave of vegetarian and vegan interest. I hope so. I hope these, even if, even if you South Africans so devoted to your braai <laughs> have the salad bit that goes with the braai, some of those dishes are just lovely and would go beautifully with, I, I do like meat. Our meat culture is so strong mm. um, to the extent that quite often, jokingly, we refer to chicken as a vegetable. Um, well, sometimes, to be honest, it has no flavor at all because it's sort of chickens are grown too fast and they're cruelly treated and they shouldn't be. I, I do think you shouldn't eat cheap supermarket chicken. Meat really is part of our culture in so many ways. How do we lessen our footprint on the environment without sacrificing food culture? Well, I don't think you have to give up meat. I just think you have to eat better meat less often. I mean, the great thing about vegetarian food is it's half the price, less than half the price of meat. So why not try doing some vegetarian dishes some days a week? And you'll find, I mean, if you do good ones, that they have every bit as much flavor as meat and a damn sight more flavor than chicken, or at least than <laughs> supermarket chicken. Actually, one of the lovely things is last week I had chicken that tasted like I remember chicken tasting when I was a child, bought from the, um, the little market at the waterfront in Cape Town. I've never seen a market which was so brilliant. I mean, the butcher was fantastic. All the meat was organic and the beef was lovely and the chicken was fantastic. And that chicken tasted like my childhood. I think flavour is uh, I think one of the most powerful things when you're saying sort of going back to, to childhood memories. And I think for many of us in South Africa, that smell of, of the braai, all of that takes you back. And I think that's where our great love for meat as well comes from. Some of my South African um, memories are in fact vegetarian, even on the braai. I mean, things like corn and butternut squash and, and potatoes cooked in the embers and, and things like those roosterbroekies. Is that what they're oh, called? yes. Oh, I mean, fantastic. little sandwiches. My aunt used to make little cheese and apricot jam sarnies on the braai. God, there was nothing like them. I mean, they were absolutely delicious. So you don't have to give up the braai. You just have to put <laughs> rather more veg on it. Than meat. And that is also something that we have actually been looking at and been um, sort of teaching as part of our curriculum as well, is to try and say responsible meat consumption. Mm. We're getting in whole carcasses for our restaurant, trying to promote the whole nose to tail. We're changing our, our dishes on our menu. Uh, it will be a duo of lamb or trio of lamb. And the cuts change every night depending on what's left of the carcass. Mm. And so we also end up cooking quite a lot of as one of my, my chef friends like to call it, the wobbly bits, mm. um, and all of the offal, which I think is something that we sometimes, uh, you know, sort of pull our noses up for. I know, and it's so crazy because that's where the most flavour is in. I mean, Absolutely. You know, I love offal, 
I really, really do. And recently I had the best ride offal that I, I think I've ever had. And it was, you're going to tell me the name of it. It was, it's Afrikaans and it's made of lamb's liver and it's, in, it's wrapped in a call. Oh, it's a skullpikey. Skullpikey. <laughs> skullpikey. A little tortoise, yeah. You will have to write that down for me. But it was the most wonderful flavor. Oh, Absolutely delicious. Yes. And that, that was just lamb's liver. And often, even now, often is cheaper than the posh cuts, although it's become so um, fashionable in Europe now that it's often more expensive. So. But it is also something that we absolutely love, love making. And um, also as part of our responsible meat consumption, we've actually tried quite a few times to incorporate it with a main item of meat. You get the lamb rack, but there might be a sweet bread or there might be oh, a skullpikey or, you know, just to say, well, you know, just try it. One of the other things that we've also done to try and, and improve some of the meat consumption is, or, or, or better responsible consumption is to try and get people to eat a wider variety. Mm. Um, and one of our very interesting experiments, actually, that you might enjoy is that we served uh, goat and lamb on the same plate. We served a lamb rack with goat belly because we know if we're putting goat on the menu, it's not going to sell. But we wanted to show people that it's actually very similar. Yeah. And it was quite surprising once you just sort of venture out and you decide to be a tiny bit brave um, to actually realize that there are different kinds of meat oh. sources to also oh. consider. Goat is wonderful. It Absolutely is. brilliant. I love it. Do you have a favorite awful dish that you like to prepare? Well, I want to learn how to make skoi pikes. I want to learn how to make skoi pikes. And that will be my favorite awful dish. But I think, that, you know, if you're... If you, if you don't cook a lot, the easiest thing to start with would be chicken livers and make them into a pate because everybody likes pate on a, on a piece of toast. And all you need to do is to fry the livers in butter um, and then whiz them up with a bit more butter. It's not good for you. This is a cholesterol feast, but spread thinly on toast is absolutely delicious and that's all it is. It's butter and chicken livers. I mean, you can, people put brandy in it, but I think that actually spoils it. I think it needs salt and pepper. Simple, full of flavor. You've mentioned the cholesterol. Um, and uh, food and health is actually one of the subjects that you are very passionate about as well. So much so that you were recently asked by British Prime Minister Boris Johnson to try and save the food in, 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 in hospitals in the UK or improve it. Well, <laughs> and, and we certainly just... don't want to save it. It needs overhaul. Overhaul. Complete nothing change. to save. Yeah. Where do you start with a challenge like that? At first I had said I wouldn't do it because I just, what I didn't want was the government announcing that they're going to overhaul hospital food and then do what governments often do. They make the announcement, they, have, they say there's going to be an inquiry, there's a tiny little inquiry or effort and then the money disappears you know they put a bit of money there and then it disappears and the whole thing collapses and many chefs have tried before you know much more famous than me to try to help the government do this and I just thought this is another PR exercise which I could do without so I said no and then the Secretary of State managed to persuade me that he was hanging his hat on reforming the NHS and that food was an important part of it. And then I said, yes, but that's all very well, but what about Downing Street and what about the Treasury? It's no good you being keen if, mm. if people who've got the money aren't keen. And so he said, well, you better meet the Prime Minister. So I went and had breakfast with Boris Johnson and sort of looked him in the eye and said, you know, do you mean it and are you going to give, give us the money and so on? And he made all the right noises, so... I have to believe them, and we. The best thing is that the 
the um, review body, everybody, almost everybody on it, is a National Health Service employee. They're doctors and dietitians and and administrators, but from the hospitals, and they're all people who've done a good job where they are. So they know how to manage change, and they're very keen on good food, and they believe in food as medicine. And so I think they will be the right people to push it forward. Food as medicine, also a subject that that we see more and more. (sighs) This is going to sound really pompous, but I really think that my generation particularly have done the planet no good. And we have been really blind to what damage we were doing. And the least we can do is to try to reverse the way we behave, not just in recycling and and saving water and all the obvious things, but in the way we eat. And there's no doubt at all that if we all were vegetarian, we could feed the planet very easily. I'm not asking everybody to be vegetarian, but if we can eat more veg, save the money that we would save if we ate more veg and less meat and spent it on better meat less often, we would be doing everybody a favour, including the planet and ourselves, because we'd be eating more flavourful food. Well, it takes 20 times more land to eat meat because we have to spend so much of the land on feeding the animals, which we then eat. If we just ate the vegetables, we would need one-twentieth of the land space. You know, and nobody's asking us to do all of that. In fact, I believe that some, we do need some, I, I don't want to see a world with no farm animals in it, which if, if you're vegan, that's what you end up with. Because, you know, if you don't eat animals, nobody's going to keep them for pets, are they? So we wouldn't have any at all, but I, I just think we need much fewer and we need them grass-fed I think in South Africa, one of our greatest challenges is also the water consumption. Raising meat, I think, takes about eight times as much water. And with Cape Town almost becoming the first city in the world and with South Africa, first country in the world to literally run out of water, um, it's become um, a, a serious conversation for us to say that we're actually a country that does not have a lot of water to spare, and yet we are absolutely loving our beef. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating debate because I, I gave a speech a little while ago in rather serious um audience about the future of food and so I said to them look we have to face the fact that we're going to have to do what many many nations do already which is eat insects I mean there's nothing wrong with eating insects but it's a mindset we think that we couldn't do that but I mean in Africa a lot of Africans eat insects we do I was in Cambodia recently and there was a street food store and they had every kind of bug there. And I wanted to take a photograph of it. It was absolutely fantastic. They had all these different things. And I must say that the insects that I've eaten, I have really liked them if they were deep fried. But then the <laughs> truth is anything deep fried is delicious. That, that's very true. But very I, did, true. I did once at, um, at your college, we did a competition, I think. I don't know if you were there then. We had a boy from Venda and he won this little competition we did, which we asked them to to cook some home dish that that their grandmothers would have cooked. Mm -hmm. And he came up with mapani worms. But they were, um, he did it in like a salad with mapani worms and they were were steamed, these things. 
And I really didn't like them because I didn't like the sort of leathery outside and the squishy middle. Oh, and yes. I couldn't, because of the texture, I couldn't concentrate on the taste. And I think if I'd kept going, I would have got to like them in the end, but I, I didn't like them. Or if they were deep fried. <laughs> but if they were deep fried, I'd love them. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely. But I, I also think what, what I quite enjoy, and I think we've also had, um, you know, in, in, in Africa or even from Mexico, I've had some amazing crickets. It's surprisingly how nutty mm. the flavour is. Cricket flour is delicious. I, it is. I've made muffins and stuff with cricket flour. And you can buy it. Um, you can't buy it in, in most supermarkets, but there are quite a lot of shops that sell mm. um, cricket flour now. And there's a, there's a restaurant somewhere in England, which I've not been to yet, but I want to, which does sell nothing but insects. So it, it will change. We will become, and mm. of course, the, the, the great advantage of insects over beef, for example, is that they are very easy to farm mm. and they're very economical to farm. They don't take the water and the land space mm. and so on. And they grow like, I mean, they breed like rabbits. Mm. <laughs> so they, you know, they, they do it very quickly. And apparently for, for many um, insects, they're also very high in protein. Mm, very so high in so protein. the nutrition side is also... Which is, mm. I mean, there's, no, there's a good reason why half the world eats insects. Mm. Is it, they are very nutritious. Mm. So we should stop being worried about them and give it a try. You visit the country quite often. Looking from the outside in, what is your impression on how South African food has changed over the last two decades? Well, do you know, Adela, I honestly believe that the Prue-Leith Culinary Institute has had a lot to do with the way things have changed because everywhere I go, if I go, because I only go to really good restaurants, okay. every restaurant I go to, they proudly say, come and see in the kitchen. And, and sure enough, somebody will be wearing one of your chef's jackets. And so I think we've had quite a lot to do with it. But the difference in 20 years of how we eat in South Africa, especially for the, in the sort of top level of um, well, no, no, not only the top level, because street food is much better and mm. you can get really good pizzas and sarnies and all sorts of things that you couldn't get before. It was just so boring food 20 years ago. It was sort of, if it was posh, it was French, French-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and if it was cheap, it was really boring hot dogs and not very good burgers. You had to have a bride to get good food 20 years ago. Now you can get other things that are good. Pre, before we end our podcast, you have already done so much, but you just do not seem to be slowing down. So what is next for Pre? I don't know what's next because I never know what's next. <laughs> I just do, but I find it very difficult to say no. I'm very keen to get this hospital food review done properly and I want to see it rolled out and hospitals changed. It'll be a long program because I may not live to see it all together, but I would certainly like to because I th think that's really important. Um, personally, I'm one of my unfulfilled ambitions is I want to have one of my novels made into a film and I want to have a tr my trilogy, my last trilogy of novels, which are called the Angelotti Chronicles. I would like to have them made into a sort of Sunday night television drama. So far, I have failed in this ambition, <laughs> but I have, I'm not giving up on it. I don't know what else do I want to do. I don't know. But I will probably, I'll probably write another novel. I think I've got one more novel in me. And I'll stick to doing journalism. I like journalism, nice short pieces. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know, I'll go on eating. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot for joining us today, Prue, and a very happy 80th birthday from all of us at the Prue Leith Culinary Institute. I am going to go and eat cake. Tell us about the competition. So we have got six finalists for your birthday competition that are very nervously preparing cakes at the moment, packing them all out to be judged by the one and only Bake Off judge. <laughs> oh, God. And this for her 80th birthday, the pressure is massive. The designs have been quite impressive. We like the flavours and we hope that they're all going to look fabulous. Six cakes for my birthday. Sounds right to me. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.